Welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Michael Walker. I will, in a very short while, be joined by Aaron Bastani. For now, I will take you through tonight's stories. Um, first off, you've probably seen Suella Braverman, top of the news cycle. Everyone's talking about her. It's about her speeding. How much do you care? We'll we'll talk about how much it matters. Um, Starmer also has a plan for the NHS. He doesn't want to um, raise taxes, though. Does that stack up? The Brazilian president, Lula, at the G7 has made some comments which have proved controversial about Ukraine and Just Stop Oil have received a surprising backer. Um, stay tuned to find out who that is. First story. There are plenty of reasons to want Suella Brabham to resign. She is, after all, the Home Secretary who has whipped up hatred against asylum seekers while promoting laws to persecute them. She's also the Home Secretary who's gone furthest in restricting our right to protest. But it's another issue which has pushed her, pushed her closer to losing her job. A speeding ticket, and more specifically, allegedly asking civil servants to get her on a private speed awareness course. This was Braverman responding to the allegation. Last summer, I was speeding. I regret that. I paid the fine and I took the points. Uh, but we're focused now on delivering for the British people and did, working did, for them. Did you ask civil servants to put you on a one-on-one -on -one speeding course? In relation to the process, I'm focused on delivering for the British people, do my job. Would you, would you what I will say is that, in my view, I'm confident that nothing untoward has happened. Would you welcome an investigation into this? Have you spoken to the Prime Minister? Would you welcome one? As I said, I'm focused on working as Home Secretary. That's why I'm here. I've met with victims today. I'm making a big announcement today. I'd appreciate the focus on an announcement which is standing up for victims and survivors in relation to the speeding ticket and my fine and points. I'm, I'm very confident. Nothing. Just, just, just very fine, very so what's the story here? Well, last summer when Braverman was Attorney General, she got caught speeding as is standard. She was offered the choice between paying a fine and accepting some points or attending a group speed awareness course. And The Guardian reports this. She is alleged to have asked civil servants to help her to arrange a one-to-one -one course, apparently to avoid the embarrassment of being recognised by fellow participants. When civil servants decline to do so, a political advisor is alleged to have stepped in to help, exploring options including her taking the course online without revealing her identity. Ultimately, Braverman opted to pay the fine. Sources close to Braverman have rejected parts of this account, claiming she merely asked civil servants for advice about how to book the course rather than instructing them to arrange it. Asking civil servants to help her in this way means that Braverman might have breached the ministerial code. That's because ministers are supposed to carefully separate their public duties from their private interests. Rishi Sunak has responded to the controversy by meeting with his independent ethics advisor, who's not really independent because he's handpicked by Rishi Sunak. But anyway, um, speaking from the G7 in Hiroshima yesterday, Sunak wasn't keen to discuss the issue with the press. Will you ask the independent advisor on minister's interests to look into your Home Secretary's conduct after she asked civil servants to help her deal with being caught speeding? And do you have full confidence in Suella Braverman? Did you have any questions about the summit? Others will, I think. Great. Uh, well, Chris, I don't know the full details of what has happened, nor have I spoken to the Home Secretary. I think you can see firsthand what I've been doing over the last day or so. Uh, but I understand that she's expressed regret for speeding, accepted the penalty and paid the fine.
If she's found to have breached the ministerial code, it'll be the second time that Braverman has broken the rules in less than a year. Last autumn, she was forced to resign as Liz Truss's Home Secretary after she sent an official document to another MP using her personal email account. And this morning, journalists asked if she would be standing down again. Are you going to resign, Home Secretary? She's here to stop the boats. Um, she had the chance to make a longer point this afternoon in Parliament. As I said earlier, last summer I was speeding. I regret that. I paid the fine and I accepted the points. And at no point did I seek to evade the sanction. But let's be honest about what this is all about, Mr Speaker. The Shadow Minister would rather distract, really, frankly, from... The abject failure by the Labour Party to offer any serious proposals on crime or policing. They want to talk about this because it distracts. It distracts from the fact that they voted against tougher sentences for paedophiles and murderers. They want us to ignore the fact that Labour MPs would rather campaign to stop the deportation of foreign criminals than back our Rwanda scheme. They would rather the country doesn't notice their total abandonment of the British people. I am joined now by Aaron Bastani. Um, Aaron, these stories come around every now and again, sort of rule-breaking stories. Sometimes they really take off, as Partygate did. That became a huge story. Um, sometimes they are relatively insignificant. What What type of scandal um, does this seem like to you? I think I'm probably the wrong person to ask, Michael, because generally I say things on these kinds of topics, and it's very unpopular with our audience. I say things they really don't like to hear. You know, they want me to say as a sort of um, as a left-wing iconoclast, she should go, she should resign. But frankly, when somebody's behaved so abominably as, as Home Secretary, when they have such an appalling record, I, I can't really get that upset about not just failing to pay a fine or trying to evade a punishment, but seeking to do a punishment at an individual level rather than with a group and asking for the advice of civil servants. It seems improper. Maybe she has broken the ministerial code. I don't know. But I, I just can't get enthused or passionate about it, Michael. There is so much going wrong with British politics at the moment. The Tories are getting so much wrong. The caliber of personnel at the very highest level in jobs such as Sula Breverman's is so terrifyingly bad but I do feel like it's the detriment of the public good um, and actually getting things right that we, we focus on this stuff. I really do. But I said the same, I've said the same before, and it's just deeply unpopular with our viewers. So, you know, please put it in the comments. Aaron's wrong. She should go. Well, she'll go and she'll be replaced by somebody very similar. You know, we're not going to get a change in, in, in how we govern this country and to do so effectively until we have a proper change of personnel. I think that partly comes about with the arrival of a Labour government after a general election. But let's be honest fundamentally, we have a deeper line problem with the entire political class. So I think there is, I think there's a real um, misinterpretation of events if you think that somehow Breverman going is going to change the slightest thing. I know it's unpopular, sorry, but as people who watch this show regularly know, I'm always honest to our audience. I remember when Partygate first started, we were very unsure whether that would be huge because, you know, we were thinking like the, the problem, what, what this Tory government has done, which is wrong, is they've made decisions which have cost thousands of lives. Whether or not they, you know, had a beer here or there doesn't seem like the biggest scandal. But then it was Partygate that brought them down because obviously that captured the public imagination. That's well, sort of a nice way of putting it. The public's fury um, in a way which I'm not sure everyone could foresee, because obviously that was a very evocative subject for people. We'd been through a very traumatic experience. We'd been following rules that were very difficult for all of our lives, and the Tories had been breaking them. 
this again, I mean, is this, I suppose this is someone trying to, you know, play by different rules to the rest of us. Other people would have to accept a fine or go to a group session. She wanted to go to an individual session because she was, you know, a notable person. But I mean, I, I don't think there are many people who feel as aggrieved by having to go to a group speeding session as there are by people who feel aggrieved by having to live through lockdown for six months. Um, so I can't see this being the straw that breaks the camel's back when it comes to Suella Bradman. Is this a deep state coup to try to get rid of Suella Bradman? That's what some are arguing. No, um, that's absolutely not the case, Michael. I mean, look, one thing I should add, which I didn't say the first time round with Suella Bradman, is her response is also appalling. You know, it's, it's very hard to defend her or the argument that would seek to defend her so I would never defend Sola Bradman, of course, uh, when, when her response is like that. And you saw Rishi Sunak instead, and here's one um, in Japan, and his response was, look, I'm, I'm here at an international conference. Can we please talk about important matters of state? And I thought he seemed quite grown up. He seemed quite serious. And it was the journalists asking the questions, I thought, who seemed a bit ch childish. And they're insisting on what is fundamentally a smaller story given global affairs over the last 18 months. That's my personal view. Um, but then you see Breverman's response, rather than saying, look, we're trying to enact the will of the people, we're trying to get forward, uh, you know, an agenda which has a mandate of 80 people at the last general election, let us get on with the job, which I think a lot of people would agree with. I'm not saying that they would vote for the Tories on the basis of it, or that they would like Suella Breverman, but for many people for who politics is the background noise, they would say, yeah, makes sense. You know, I'm not really a fan of the, the permanent drama, EastEnders-style political coverage we've had in this country over the last half a decade. But she didn't do that. She, she basically channeled the exact same energies which are coming after her, because I think fundamentally as a politician, she's very two-dimensional. She has one dial. It's a bit like a Henry Hoover, you know, one of the cheap ones, not the pneumatic ones. You have on or off, or go to sleep. And I feel like Sola Breverman doing politics can only talk about culture wars, can only talk with bile and venom and anger and enmity. And she can't just you know, tone it down, dial it down, take the sting out of the story in a way that, say, Rishi Sunak could. Um, we saw David, a clip of David Cameron over the weekend, too, doing something similar a few years ago with Philip Schofield. That's clearly not in her political repertoire. Um, probably not to her benefit when she's the story. Probably not helpful if you can't just try and take a bit of energy out, a bit of heat out of a story when you're the target, because that's exactly what you should be trying to do. Sort it out for them. We're going to move on to a different story, which is probably going to be more consequential to all of our lives. Keir Starmer has been laying out his plans for the NHS, speaking at a press conference in Essex. This was the general vibe. We will fight for the NHS. We will fix the NHS. We will reform the NHS. Old values, new opportunities. Technology and science, convenience and control, renewal not decline. An NHS not just off its knees, but running confidently towards the future. So that's the big message. Um, I, whatever, towards the future, twirling, twirling, speaking, or something like that, that Simpsons sketch. I mean, in any case, more specifically in the speech, Starmer set out three pledges. First, Labour would make the NHS fit for purpose by reducing ambulance waiting times to seven minutes for cardiac arrests, making sure A&E departments hit their four-hour wait target and increasing satisfaction with GPs. Second, he said Labour would eliminate regional health and life expectancy inequalities. And third, Labour would tackle the country's three biggest killers, heart attacks and strokes, cancer, and for young people, um, the biggest killer is suicide. Um, following that rule of free, so we've got free problems, free ways to fix it. Starmer talked about free shifts the NHS 
would need to make to achieve those goals. Shift one. We must move care away from hospitals and closer to the community. The NHS must become a neighbourhood health service. I'll put it bluntly, at the moment, we aren't good enough at treating people early in the community. We leave it to hospitals, and quite often, that's too late. And if we change this, it will save lives and money. That's why we're going to improve GP access. End the 8am scramble. We'll train more GPs, but we'll also make the future of general practice more sustainable. Shift two. We must move from a mindset that views health as all about sickness to one where we put prevention first, right across society. So we'll take bold action where early intervention can make a huge difference on mental health. And make no mistake, we intend to revolutionise mental health treatment in this country. 8,500 new mental health professionals, specialist access in every school, Guaranteed treatment inside four weeks for anyone who needs it. Shift three, technology. A revolution that will accelerate the first two shifts and herald a different kind of healthcare. A move from an analog to a digital NHS. A tomorrow service, not just a today service. And mark my words, this can be transformational. The route to the NHS offering shorter waiting times, better treatment, early diagnosis and meaningful prevention. Britain leads the world in science and technology. We can make this happen. This is the game changer, the light at the end of the tunnel. So the plans there were to treat people earlier by making GPs more accessible. I think everyone will agree with that. Um, employing thousands of new mental health professionals to guarantee treatment within four weeks. That's definitely not being achieved now. That would be great if they could do it. And widespread digitization making the most of technology. Um, on the question of raising money to pay for those improvements, though, Starmer was somewhat vague. He spoke to Good Morning Britain before the speech. How else are you going to raise money? Yeah. Because many people might think a Labour government will put up taxes. Will you? Uh, look, where we've said we'll put up tax, we've been clear what we will do. So that's the non-DOM status you've just referred. We do want to close some of the loopholes in our tax system. There's a loophole for private equity. We would close that and use that money directly to fund 8,500 mental health advisors, community-based, if at all possible, because okay. that's, Income I think, tax, where they Income tax, would it needed. go up under a Labour um, government? And then... National insurance? No, I don't want income tax to go up under a Labour government. Uh, tax is at a very, very high level that it is. But what I'm setting out today is um, acknowledging that more money does need to go into the NHS, and we'll set out in terms um, what you that is as we get closer to the election. You don't want tax to go up. But you I don't do, want income do, tax to go up. But are you uh, ruling out no, income tax going up or national insurance? No, I, look, we, we, we've no plans for increasing tax. Uh, that isn't um, how we've started this. But we have looked at the question of how we better use the money that's available. So Labour has no plans to increase income tax. And so instead, we'll be looking at how they can better use the money that is available. Um, maybe it makes sense politically, but does it stack up in terms of policy? I'm joined by Chris Thomas, head of the IPPR's Commission on Health and Prosperity and author of the Five Health Frontiers. Um, thanks for joining us, Chris. What do you make of the plan? 
Look, I think the the headline level pledges, are, 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 you know, they're aspirational, right? Um, that we would have an NHS that's fully working again. I mean, the the state of it as it stands, and almost every indicator I look at, it's 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 really under huge pressure, and people aren't getting the care they need. They aren't getting um, the experience of care that they that they should, and the outcomes that uh, that we get in the UK, you know, comparatively elsewhere, um, we're we're doing pretty poorly. Um, but I think you know things uh, above and beyond the NHS, like healthy life expectancy, um, good to see. Um, the implication of that being that, that that health will need to be defined as much more than just healthcare. Um, to get healthy life expectancy up, you need to do a whole range of things, like make sure the foundations of people's early lives through to school are right. That um, that things like financial stress um, don't undermine their health. Um, so uh, I think I think what we've got is a relatively big set of pledges um the kind of uh big question is is the one you point out it's uh can they be achieved and do we have a plan to achieve them and i mean is there any meat to what he said here i mean he, he said this is a plan i mean to me i can, i understand the politics of it he's saying i'm going to fix the nhs but i'm not going to raise your taxes and therefore if you want to fix something but you aren't going to you know put significant money towards it you have to say i'm going to make it better some other way and he says we're going to do that by early interventions and also by using technology. I mean, is it is it plausible that you can make the NHS considerably better, get down all of these waiting lists by using technology and doing some early interventions and then distributing a bit of money from a non-DOM tax, which I think is about three billion pounds? Yeah. So on the question of whether you know, can you can you raise some money by by um, doing prevention using money better? I think probably you can. Um, we're, uh, we're we're pretty poor in the UK at early intervention, but it is it is significantly cheaper and it's better for for people. But we're we're poor at firstly kind of early diagnosis um, of of a condition, but but where we're particularly poor is in doing the things that would prevent that sickness from happening altogether. And that comes down to things like you know, let's take heart disease, whether you're under huge chronic stress. It comes down to whether you've access to healthy food. So a whole range of things. Again, can you do some of this through technology? I think there's probably some places that that you know you can make gains. The NHS hasn't had huge investment in its uh, infrastructure during austerity, so there are probably some things there too. Um, and on the efficiency point, um, well, austerity has been very expensive for the NHS. It forced it to spend essentially 13 years um, finding short-term cost efficiencies at the expense of long-term sustainability. So I think um, those are things that are probably worth prioritizing. But let's contrast that then against the aspiration of the pledges of, of really pushing forward healthy life expectancy of some pretty sizable drops in the biggest killers. I think it's probably very unlikely that you can do that without fundamental investment. Um, so there probably is a kind of where do you find, how do you raise revenue question that Labour will have to address. Look, that could be through um, broad-based taxes like income taxes. That that probably needs to be considered. I'd like to see them think a little bit more creatively as well. Um, you know, in places like climate policy, there's uh, a pretty good established um, notion that if something is polluting, then um, it's liable. It's it's justified to tax it. We've seen windfall taxes um, over the last year or two. Um, but when um, there are things that corporates do that harm our health, and there is a lot of corporate activity that has a negative impact on our health, whether that's, you know, kind of the big evil, you know, tobacco and 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 big food, or whether that's employment standards or social media, 
well, I think extending out things like uh, pay or play principles, polluter pays principles to raise money in that way, there's quite a virtuous cycle there. You can deliver better health, you can protect people from um, the kind of exploitation of capital, but you can also then start to fund some of the things that that will really be shift changes in the, the missions and aspirations that Labour have set up today. It wasn't a big theme today, but previously Wes Streeting especially has sort of made a big deal about the fact that Labour will not be afraid to turn to the private sector to try and get down waiting lists. Um, I mean, how does that stack up? Is that is that sensible? Is that just a sort of non-ideological, pragmatic policy or is there a bit more to it? The logic, I, I suppose, that underpins it is that if we have a system at the moment where people are actively, you know, opting out and choosing to go private in the NHS, then there might be a case for using all the means available to say, well, we'll get through the immediate crisis. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sceptical of whether that really works because you have a lot of negative consequences that come with that. Firstly, you have the kind of evidence that these options are just fundamentally quite expensive. Um, they they tend to cost a lot more money. I mean, there's a profit motive in there, isn't there? So they're more expensive than using public capacity. You then also have a problem that you're not using that activity to boost NHS capacity. So if you were building capacity, you can continue to use that. If you're on a short-term basis contracting private capacity, then that's quite difficult. Um, so look, I kind of appreciate that um, at, a, at a state where we've got 7 million people waiting for care and we've got kind of crisis red lights flashing on most of the indicators in the data, that a pull all the levers approach might be tempting. Um, but I think that's one that comes with uh, a lot of quite profound risk. Chris Thomas, thank you so much for speaking to us on your insights on Keir Starmer's speech. Aaron, I know you've got a few things to say on this. What did you make of the announcements today? Ridiculous. Stupid. Uh, we've had some very thoughtful contributions from the previous gentleman, and I, and I agree with a great deal of it. It was very thoughtful and nuanced. One, one thing I would add is demographic ageing. So not everybody is getting older. Actually, we've seen the median age in this country really stagnate for the last 10, 12 years. But a sizable portion of the population is, is living longer and longer and longer. It generally indexes onto wealth. Uh, and what you have with a larger chunk of the population living longer and longer is you have far greater health and social care needs, far more complicated. You know, somebody having dementia, which is, by the way, the leading cause of death in this country, hard to believe, I know we rarely talk about it, but the leading cause of death in the UK is dementia. That is far more expensive to treat than cancer, stroke, heart attack. Stroke can be incredibly expensive, of course, but dementia is a big deal when it comes to resources. So in, a, in an aging society with more and more age-related health conditions, uh, I, I don't buy this argument that prevention will help us. I mean, of course, some prevention is is going to help. It's going to obviously be welcome. Uh, but the idea that it's, you know, the, the Hail Mary pass to help healthcare provision in this country, complete nonsense. Also, Labour has often talked about a health and social care service, which is integrated, a national care service. I don't see how you do that without extraordinary investment, extraordinary investment. So I think today was really a, a, a de facto admission that a national care service isn't happening. And I mean, West Treating has talked about it as an aspiration, but clearly not over one parliament, I think two, frankly, if this is what they're doing in their first parliament. So the, the demographic aging is, is a major angle for me. And I think it's something which many politicians and, and the media, frankly, don't really talk about. That's why it's the topic of my next book. And the implications it has not just for public services, but the economy more broadly. I think Labour are kind of sleeping at the wheel when it comes to ageing. Then secondly, on the technology angle, I mean, 
Michael, sometimes Keir Starmer, for a, such an educated man who's been so professionally successful, he doesn't half say some stupid things. As if these technologies he's referring to are free. We're going to save money because we're going to use cutting-edge technologies. So hold on. We're going to start um, getting everybody's genome at birth, as, as we already do with some children. There's a series of pilots do that. So basically, a child is born, you get a drop of blood, you sequence, sequence its entire genome, and you can find out for early, early death risks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If we start doing that for every child, it's going to start costing lots of money very quickly. If there is a breakthrough treatment, if there's an mRNA vaccine for a kind of cancer, People are going to want it. It's going to cost lots of money. We're going to have to give it to them. So the idea that technology somehow reduces costs, really stupid. When we talk about technology in the NHS, we need to think about um, you know, uh, mRNA vaccines, uh, MRI scans. We need to talk about like stuff that you know is really experimental at this stage. And then finally, Michael, bring it all together. Healthcare is incredibly labor intensive. Healthcare and social care are incredibly labor intensive. So when things are labor intensive, it's very unrealistic to say, we'll keep costs down in this industry through use of new technologies, because the overwhelming, um, you know, sort of the majority of where the costs are coming from, fundamentally human beings, okay, particularly in social care. That is not going to be automated for a long, long time. So I think on demographic aging, uh, on his understanding of technology, and on the nature of health and social care is incredibly labor intensive. I think Keir Starmer hasn't got the slightest idea what he's talking about. Clearly pref preferable to the conservatives, I should add. Some of the things he was saying, for instance, around mental health being treated within four weeks, fantastic. But big picture on healthcare going forward in the 2020s, 2030s, I think he's got no ideas, frankly. I presume in terms of technology, because I think this is an interesting question. I mean, when it comes to drugs, I think that the development of new drugs actually does cost the NHS more money year on year because people have demand for these new drugs. And there's a very sort of capable patent system whereby, you know, the drug companies can, you know, put a moat around their product, around their, their technology. When it comes to software, is it not more likely that maybe that could save some money? I mean, I don't think it's going to be the silver bullet that saves the NHS, but when it comes to sort of looking at scans for cancer, which I think was what he was talking about today, presumably it is harder to put a moat around that. So once you get that software, that might save some time for a cancer specialist when they're trying to, uh, to identify who's, who's got cancer. On um, uh, an M MRI scan, which presently is very expensive, um, what you will see in the, in, in, the, in the near future, Michael, and this is an important point, and you're partly right here, is that you have a radiologist, they're presently given the scan, and they can discern what's, what's wrong with somebody. And what you're going to see with AI and big data and machine learning is that you'll need fewer and fewer radiologists, and basically a, an AI will be able to read somebody's scan ultra quickly, and almost in terms of quality control, you'd have a human overseeing it. So you're right to say, well, that means we'll, we'll be employing fewer radiologists, that's partly true, uh, but that's not the, the majority of healthcare. By the way, we'll also be giving out far more um, MRI scans because, like I say, of an aging population. I think that would just make that a more sort of quotidian, everyday aspect of, of healthcare provision. So when we talk about technology somehow being deflationary, which it can in some things, right? Like if we're talking about public transport over the next 30, 40 years, and you believe in self-driving cars, that's clearly a massively deflationary trend. But elderly care, social care, nurses, doctors, we're not automating those people anytime soon. You know, maybe we'll have androids doing this in 100 years, fine. 
which is the equivalent of a self-driving car. So the idea that technology is going to be significantly deflationary, i.e. to bring prices down in healthcare, I don't buy for two reasons. Like I said, it's A, labor intensive, but B, like you say, as an ancillary point, big pharma companies have patents on a lot of these drugs. So there could be a new treatment for, um, for a genetically inherited condition. Now, many people might not have that condition, sickle cell, but clearly the ones that do would want to be treated for it. Think about, for instance, retroviral drugs with regards to HIV AIDS in the early 1990s. Most people didn't have HIV. The ones that did have it was saying quite, quite fairly and honestly to people at the Reagan administration, it's our God-given right to be given this treatment and we have to make that happen as quickly as possible. That costs the taxpayer money. So this idea that somehow you know, technology is just going to get cheaper no, as human science advances, particularly in, in med medicine and healthcare, actually, no, we're going to have to attribute more resources to this. Because like I say, fundamentally, it boils down to Michael, people living longer. In 1900, life expectancy, life expectancy in this country is around 35. What was the average person dying of? It was infection. Today, the average person is dying because of age-related conditions. So if you're talking about preventative healthcare, you can't prevent getting older, okay? Healthcare, stroke, cancer, and like I said, dementia, all index onto age. You're all, you're, with all of those, you're more likely to have them as you get older. So even if, for instance, you're 75 and you recover from cancer, you get to 80, you're very likely to have a stroke. You get to 85, you're very likely to have heart disease. You get to 90, you're very likely to have dementia. Because as we grow older, the risk, the probability of all of these conditions increases exponentially. And I'm not using that word sort of, you know, randomly like people seem to use it. It does increase exponentially as you get older. So a, a population where many, many people are in their 80s, 90s, and beyond will be incredibly expensive to look after, care, and keep. And I don't think Labour's being honest about that with the kind of rhetoric uh, we saw earlier on today. All of this means that we we will have to pay more tax. If you've got a, a dramatically aging population, so more people who aren't of working age, the dependency ratio is higher. That's sort of the wonky way of saying it, and you will have to pay more tax, and they should probably be honest with us about that. Next story. World leaders have been meeting at the G7 summit in Hiroshima, Japan. A major topic was, of course, the war in Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky turned up himself. He was there to ask the leaders of the group of sevens, so that's France, Germany, Italy, the US, Canada, Japan, and the UK, plus the EU, to pledge more financial support for the country's war effort. After the meeting, US President Joe Biden announced one of the outcomes. Today I'm announcing the next tranche of US security assistance to Ukraine. A package that includes more ammunition, artillery, armored vehicles to bolster Ukraine's battlefield abilities. And uh, the United States continues to help Ukraine respond, recover, and rebuild. And we're also supporting your pursuit of a just peace, just uh, one aspect of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. It has to be non-negotiable. It just has to happen. So that was Joe Biden reaffirming the U.S. position that Ukraine's territory is non-negotiable when it comes to ending the war. And um, that's a position held by most Western leaders. And Rishi Sunak made a similar pledge in Parliament. Putin should know that we are not going anywhere. Yeah. And we know that Ukraine will not only win the war, but can and will win <coughs> a just and lasting peace based on respect for international law, the principles of the UN Charter, and territorial integrity and sovereignty. But it wasn't just G7 leaders at the summit. Brazil's President Lula was there too. I mean, he has a different view about how to broker peace in Eastern Europe. Last month, Lula made these comments in Brazil. The United States needs to stop encouraging war and start talking about peace. 
The European Union needs to start talking about peace so that we can convince Putin and Zelensky that peace is in the interest of the whole world. That led to the US accusing Lula of parroting Russian propaganda and it earned him a rebuke from Ukraine. Later in Portugal, he clarified his position. That's a much softer view, but it's still one that puts a negotiated peace front and centre. And in a sign that things remain frosty between Lula and Ukraine's president, this is what happened when Zelensky arrived at the G7 summit. As you can see, world leaders clamoured to shake Zelensky's hand, but not Lula who stayed firmly in his seat. Lula has consistently called for a ceasefire in Ukraine to allow talks to take place, and the Brazilian president was also due to meet Zelensky for bilateral talks, but the Ukrainian leader didn't turn up. Apparently, there was a scheduling conflict. When it comes to the war, Lula isn't alone in his approach. Two other guests at the summit, India and Indonesia, also called for peace without endorsing the G7's position. With Brazil, those three countries represent a quarter of the world's population, and South Africa and China have stopped short of supporting an all-out victory for Ukraine as well. Fundamentally, with countries like India, Brazil, China, less so China, China's already arrived as a major power, but Brazil, Indonesia, India, they are trying to really maximize their interests. And I think, and it's a fair point to make, and it was made in an article in the Weekend FT, in fact, which is to say, look, you like to talk about the international community, but it works both ways. Brazil is a country of 200 million people, and yet nobody ever talks about it being a member of the UN Security Council. The same with India. 1.4 billion people, rising power. Its economy is going to overtake Germany and the UK and, uh, and eventually Japan relatively soon. It's already overtaken the UK, I think. But Germany and Japan, you know, over the next decade, nobody's saying that India should be on the Security Council as a member of the international community. So... From an Indian or a Brazilian or Indonesian perspective, I can understand how it's very grating how basically they're not really given the appropriate way they should have in international affairs, and yet they're just ordered to get in line with regards to whatever the United States or, or, or Europe says. Now, that's not to say that, you know, Lula should oppose, you know, uh, Ukraine. Should, so I'm not suggesting that for a moment. But I think that's the context here. And I think it's often not mentioned enough in, in, in the West, is that we have a highly asymmetric distribution of power in terms of our international, international economic and political architecture, from the UN to the World Bank to the IMF, highly, highly, highly asymmetrical to the fact that the US dollar is the global reserve currency. And I think countries like India, Brazil, Indonesia, quite fairly say, well, why, why, should, we, why, why should we go all in on a global order which doesn't really confirm our interests. I think that's quite a reasonable, rational thing to do. And frankly, you know, Lula da Silva has been elected, just about, he just about beat Bolsonaro, by the Brazilian electorate. It's a country of 200 million people. That's a hell of a lot more authority and legitimacy than the think tankers and the spads and the advisors and the pundits, the Beltway in Washington or in SW1 in London. And I think people should respect that a little bit more. You know, he, he's looking out for the national interest of his country. Now, I have to repeat, it doesn't mean he should side with Putin. And I, you can also talk about realpolitik and at the same time say that it's wrong or immoral. 
But really, I can understand why a Brazilian statesperson or an Indian statesperson would want to drive a hard bargain in terms of supporting a position against Russia here. I, I, I do understand it. And I think you have to be a little bit naive if, if you don't. This seems to me like realism from those countries. And, you know, the sort of moralistic language we often hear from the West, why Ukraine is different is because it's an explicit challenge to the rules-based order. And the rules-based order essentially means the the status quo imposed by the West for the past 70 years. So while I, I, I think the Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a crime of aggression, I think it's completely outrageous. I think the West's approach to it is different from other conflicts because they see this as a challenge to their hegemony. And obviously, China, India, Brazil, they're less outraged by that, right? Because they don't have much of a stake in the rules-based order as it has existed up to now. Um, of course, so it's not just the G7 leaders that are irritated by Lula's attempts to start peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. It's also G7 journalists like Paul Mason, um, if we can still call him a journalist. Um, he posted this on social media. So it's in response to a tweet from Oliver Stunkel, who is a Brazilian journalist. He said, Lula says Ukraine's peace proposal, which includes a demand for Moscow to withdraw all its troops and for Ukraine's full territorial integrity to be restored, amounts to Russia's surrender. And Paul Mason responds, on the geopolitical stage, Lula is acting like a clown. He's making the most naked attempt to turn Brazil into a semi-colony of China and a client state for a doomed fascist regime. <laughs> The next iteration of Brazil's left needs to break with this bullshit. Um, so that's Paul Mason telling the Brazilian left um, what to do next. Um, will they be listening, do you think, Aaron? Michael, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Lula lost, the, lost an election in the 21st century. You correct me if I'm wrong. No, he He's the most successful left-wing leader anywhere in the world. And by the way, Brazil saw breakneck growth between 2000 and 2008 without its Gini coefficient going up, without becoming more unequal an incredible achievement, taking millions of people out of poverty with things like Bolsa Familia. So I, I think actually, Mike, Michael, if people can just recollect what that, that stupid tweet said, he wants to turn Brazil into a semi-colony of China. No, he doesn't want Brazil to be a semi-colony of the United States. And that's what Paul is upset about. That's it. And the idea that it's a client state of Russia, I mean, nobody, who, who, who thinks that? Really? Who thinks that? Who thinks that Brazil is a client state of Russia? It's a major power in its own right. Isn't it interesting, Michael? We heard so much about West-splaining. When Westerners told activists and individuals and governments in the global south about what was right and what was wrong and, and what's appropriate for them to do, apparently, the, you know, if you're in the West, you can't do that. Except, of course, except, of course, if it's uh, people in the global south who, who happen to dissent with uh, what's in the interest of the global north. And in, in, in that case, then West-splaining, this little meme, goes out of the window and it's it's perfectly fine. For, for Paul Mason, who, I, as far as I understand, probably didn't even win an election to be school milk monitor, uh, can tell Lula da Silva, who hasn't lost an election in the 21st century, what he needs to do uh, to win. And the idea that the Brazilian left is going to take lessons from a puffed-up phony like Paul Mason, please. <laughs> All right, we're not going to dwell too much on Paul Mason. Um, but it was an interesting response to that story, I thought. I mean, I wholly agree with you, Aaron Bastani. It wasn't interesting in the sense that it was remotely true, but it was um, telling, let's say. Next story. The Tories are still taking heat over the crap being dumped in our rivers by privatised water companies. This was Therese Coffey on The Laura Koonsberg Show. The water companies have apologised this week, and you've pointed out that they are under investigation. But what has made a lot of our viewers 
really cross is not just as Lynn Pritchard is asking, why has the government over years allowed sewage to be discharged into rivers and seas, but why, she emails, do we as consumers have to pay extra for this to be cleaned up? Because yes, the companies are promising billions on this, but those billions are going to go onto our bills. Why should consumers pay? Well, one thing is very clear. Consumers will not be paying for the penalties or fines that the Environment the Agency that the Environment Agency can levy and deed off what as well. So there's an element there where that is already has to be taken account that the polluter pays principle. In regards to ongoing investment, there's been a record amount of investment that we've seen since privatisation. And as well as I'm very conscious there have been dividends too. I think last year it was uh, just under 4% mm -hmm. repaid. But, but my question is why should consumers have to pay? The water companies, I believe, are £2 billion in dividends recently to shareholders. So why should consumers have to pay to clean up their mess? Well, consumers aren't going to be paying for the, for the illegal discharges, the fines and penalties that have already been levied. But there has to be ongoing investment in these, uh, in these things. We've seen not far from here, we've got the Thames Super Sewer. Uh, it's a multi-billion pound project that's taking over 10 years to do. That will eradicate pretty much all of the uh, need to use storm overflows in the future. Uh, but I'm conscious, and that's why we've asked Offwatt, or Offwatt has taken advantage of the powers they asked for, to link environmental and performance to the payment of dividends. I know mm -hmm. several of the water company chief executives are, are not taking bonuses. Uh, but what I will say is that we continue to make sure this. we've got this plan Water UK have talked about £10 billion. That's about the figure we were expecting mm -hmm. them to invest by the end of this decade. Uh, and they need to get on with the job and tackle this, including the storm action overflow plans, which I'm expecting okay. on my desk at the end of next month. Okay. So she's saying consumers won't have to pay the fines, so the fines that the, the companies get charged when they release shit into the rivers. Um, but they will have to pay for the investment into improving the system. Now, why that irks people, and I think quite rightly, is because what's happened over previous decades is instead of properly investing in the system, profits, which comes from our water bills, have gone to dividends. So instead of us now saying, well, there's, there's a deficit of investment in this system, um, so we're now going to have to pay more in our water bills to fix it all. So well, what about all those dividends that got paid out over the past 20 years, right? That's that's the issue. Um, luckily, also on the Coonsberg Show, listening to coffee was money-saving expert Martin Lewis. This is how he responded. It was nice, at least after your questions on sewerage, to finally be able to say accurately that that was a politician definitely talking crap. So, um, and, and you know, you look at the water industry. What did we do with water? We privatised it, but with no competition. Well, when you have privatisation without competition, you have regulatory capture. The regulators clearly aren't working well enough, mm -hmm. and therefore we're in the position that we're in. We okay. seem to have got the worst on, of both worlds. We do actually have one water company that is still owned by the public and not-for-profit, and that's Welsh Water. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in Ceredigion and Gwynedd, we have some of the worst pollution of our rivers in England and Wales. So, republic, you know. No, whether they're private companies or Sorry, not, are you saying, that, see, are you saying the way the water industry works as a whole well, isn't a good thing? Well, you or, say, you, or are you, you trying you, to cherry pick one example? My point is, well, I'm not. what we was the benefit of privatisation? What was the benefit of privatisation without competition? We've seen record and do we have regulatory? Water. Who's in charge? Is it your government's fault or the regulator's fault? Well, What's I, happened? I, it must be one of them. But we have so is it the regulator or your, your government? Your point, I think, if I may, was that you were saying privatisation is a bad thing and has led to this failure of investment. And I'm just saying there is there is a real life comparison we can use, which is well. That's not what I said. 
said we had privatization without competition, which seems to be the worst of both worlds. I'm not sure why we did it. Why did we do one without the other? You're going to have a privatized is... system. Surely you have to have competition to make the markets work in a market theory, big, or you have regulation. That was Martin Lewis arguing with Jake Berry, um, Conservative MP. There's a figure, Michael, I want our audience and our listeners and our viewers to bear in mind in regards to this story. Since 1991, there have been £57 billion paid out as shareholder dividends to private water company shareholders. £57 billion. Now, even Jake Berry there, let's take his argument to its logical conclusion. He's saying there is no fundamental difference in water quality between what's going on in Wales and privatised water companies elsewhere. Uh, let's not even talk about Scotland. He, he, he happily doesn't mention Scotland where there is public ownership of clean water. Let's park that. England and Wales, he talks about one authority in Wales. It's publicly owned and uh, it's just as bad. Well, okay, let's say we had the exact same situation, Jake. Let's say they were all publicly owned and the water was just as dirty. We'd still be 57 billion pounds better off. You could have spent that on schools, high-speed rail, trams, public housing. I don't know. So even when he's got his gotcha, that's how bad it is for these guys, Michael. That's how bad this argument is for the Conservative Party and people that like privatization. Even their gotcha has within it a kernel of complete failure, an admission that this should never happen, right? Their best case scenario is that, oh, actually, there's no difference. and We've just cost you 57 billion pounds. It would have been the same anyway, but instead we've lost out on 57 billion pounds. That is Jake Berry's best possible counter-argument. I think it's pretty fair to say when that's the case, you, you know you're on the losing side. I was reading a blog by Robert Colville, who's um, director of the Center for Policy Studies, so the Thatcherite think tank. And the argument he was making is that when you sort of compare the UK to Europe, we kind of invest sort of the median level. There are countries that invest a lot more, such as Germany. There are countries that invest a lot less. Um, and we're somewhere in the middle and he's saying that when it was nationalized, the problem is that you underinvest in it because the government is always trying to keep taxes low and they're always going to, you know, favor education and health over infrastructure. Um, and, and so privatizing it solves that. Do you give any merit to that kind of argument? No. Look at all the infrastructure that was built in this country through, through the taxpayer between 1945 and, and 1979. And a great deal of it's just been taken for granted and is is going to rack and ruin. No, it's complete nonsense. He's, he's making an argument which sounds clever to support the state of affairs, which benefits wealthy people like him. He's related to Churchill, Michael, and is, in, is not in the interests of working people. And because it sounds nice and clever and complicated and contrary, and you never heard it before, well, that's an interesting point. It's an interesting point. It's also wrong. I don't really buy that for a second, Michael. Uh, you know, this idea that somehow, it, it, what the hell, what's been the, good, what's been the good story here with water? The average executive in the water industry in this country earns more than a million pounds a year, Bills have, have gone up massively more than inflation since 1991. The infrastructure is getting worse year on year. And even if you think the water would have been just as dirty, and I, I don't think that, we've lost that on 57 billion. I do not understand it. And particularly in the case of the issue with Wales and Wales having you know, also dirty water, it is important to say that the leading cause of effluent and, and crap going into rivers is animal agriculture, particularly things like chicken farming. So the reason why the river hay is really, really suffering in terms of freshwater fish is because of ginormous chicken farms built on to the river over the last 10 years, and they're destroying wild ecosystems there. That's all true. And that's more of an issue actually on the English-Welsh borders and, and in Wales than it is in England. But 
that is not the whole story. It's part of the story. So, of course, it's true that we need to address issues of animal agriculture. By the way, there are regulations that those chicken farms are meant to adhere to, which they don't. Brilliantly uh, written about by George Monbiot uh, in, in both books and in The Guardian. But no, this idea that massive state infrastructure, best less the private sector. Okay, how about the Three Gorges Dam? How about a little thing called the New Deal by FDR in the US, which created infrastructure that country is still dependent on 90 years later, like the interstate highway system, a lot of its sort of dams and so on, and infrastructure with regards to one of the earliest forms of renewable energy, hydroelectric. A lot of that goes back 80 years, 85 years. So um, no, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Just Google the New Deal FDR, pretty obvious he's wrong. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the, the Tory argument for privatization to me often seems to be, well, the problem with public ownership is that every now and again, the Tories will get into power and they'll run it into the ground, which is it's kind of, it's an argument which is only made by Tories. And you say, you can't, this has to be privatized because otherwise we will destroy it, which is, uh, you know, a, a novel argument to say the least. Final story. Tough guys love just stop oil. Or at least that's what I took from this interview on Laura Koonsberg's BBC show. The activists involved sometimes now are taking quite extreme action to cause disruption to people's lives, to raise the cause. Is that the right way to go about it? This is a very passionate people. These are people that uh, mean well. They're maybe not going about it in a way that we would like them to go about it. But the bottom line is, is people worldwide are angry about government because they just have excuses after excuses why they cannot get it done. I mean, think about it, that the world signed an agreement in 2015 in Paris to go and to reduce greenhouse gases by a certain percentage. Well, 70% of the countries have not really lived up to their promise. So, so now you live in one of those countries and you say to yourself, Wait a minute, including Austria has not lived up to its promise. So there's 70% of the countries that have lived, not lived up to their promise. So people are angry. They say, what can I do? So they go and just do anything because they're angry and they're frustrated. So governments always find excuses after excuses why it is expensive, it's this or that. I don't know what they're talking about. It's just the will is not there. And they're worried about selling out and all of these kind of things and maybe disappointing the oil companies or the car manufacturers. It needs leadership and it needs people to come together. Aaron, Arnold Schwarzenegger, the Terminator, the former Republican governor of California, um, is, is on side when it comes to just stop oil. He's always been very good on climate issues and he's talking sense. Look, in 2021, the International Energy Agency said that there can be no new developments of oil, gas, uh, or coal, but particularly oil and gas, um, if we are to reach net zero by 2050. Now, everybody pays that lip service, right? We, we, we talk about net zero by 2050 in this country. Um, and of course, the IEA is talking at a, at a global level, net zero by 2050 would be you know, an extraordinary accomplishment. But if you are serious about that, then it means not creating any new oil or gas sites in your country, which is exactly what we're trying to do. And frankly, the government and the, the Tories, let's be honest, are so over, all over the place on this stuff. So, you know, we had fracking until 20, God knows, 15, 16, 17, 17, then no fracking. Then Liz Truss wanted to bring back fracking, right? They claim they want net zero. Then they don't want net zero. They want you to go in electric cars. Uh, by the way, we'll stop the sale of, of petrol cars after 2030, but we won't build the infrastructure for you, 
for you to be able to charge an electric vehicle. They're clearly not serious people in addressing this issue. And so I think Arnold Schwarzenegger put it perfectly, which is, well, people see there's a huge problem, which, by the way, political elites acknowledge. And they see that there is an action which is commensurate to the problem. And so they say, well, I'm going to do something about it. And you don't, you don't have to agree with what they're doing. What he did there, Michael, I thought this is a key distinction. He didn't defend what they're doing. He explained it. There's a big, big difference. He explained why Just Stop Oil are committed to direct action in the way that they are. And that is because there is a fundamental disconnect between how politicians talk regarding the scale of the climate crisis and then with regards to what they actually do. And I think it's brilliant that people keep on drawing attention to precisely that disconnect. Politicians are not serious about the scale of the climate crisis. Now, some people watching this or, or listening or, 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 you know, watching or listening or whatever, I don't know what else you'd be doing, maybe a clip on social media, whatever your feelings about Just Stop Oil, even if you think that, you know, climate change doesn't exist, this is the exact same attitude we, we see with regards to the housing crisis, inequality, the industrialization, um, the, the decline of the high street, demographic aging. The political class will talk about all these things. This is definitely happening. There's, there's a housing crisis. What are you going to do about it? Uh, well, if only developers would build more houses. Oh, demographic aging, we're getting older. Then Keir Starmer says, we'll, we'll be better than the Tories on the NHS. Yes, of course they will be. But then proceeds to say, we don't need to spend any money. Technology is the breakthrough. What? To stop people getting older? <laughs> Maybe in 100 years, Keir. We, we won't be around to see it, sadly. So uh, I think that disconnect needs to be highlighted by activists again and again and again and again and again. It's a serious issue. You say as much, and yet you don't act accordingly. So technology, I suppose, might solve the problem of the, the cost of an aging population, but it could do it via AI by killing us all early. Um, Aaron, is that a good segue to the interview you conducted on Sunday for people to check out on Downstream? Um, yeah, well, arguably. I mean, look, the, the, there, is, there is one way that you can address demographic aging via technology, and that's obviously to stop the aging process. And there are some people in Silicon Valley who are on that train, Michael. You know, the only way that we can keep down care costs for healthcare is to literally stop aging. Sounds great. Uh, probably not happening anytime soon, but it's an interesting field of research. Equally wacky, and here comes the segue until recently, was AI. Um, two kinds of AI we talk about in that interview, Michael. Uh, deep machine learning, which is going to automate lots of jobs and, and, and really challenge millions of occupations. Then also we touch upon this idea of an AGI, an artificial general intelligence, an intelligence capable of augmenting its own intelligence. What are the political, economic, and cultural implications of that? Important to say that doesn't have to happen for AI to be hugely disruptive and to change our world. You know, it can be the equivalent of the industrial revolution and the steam engine without us all ending in the matrix or seeing the rise of Skynet. Perfect. Do check that out. Um, I am yet to listen, but I'm really looking forward to it because I do think this is one of the most fascinating questions of the 21st century. On that note, thank you, Aaron, for joining me tonight. Very happy to, Michael. Thank you. And Aaron will be hosting tomorrow night with fan favourite Barnaby Rain. Um, so make sure to come back at 6pm. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.